Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. When World War I began in Europe, American journalists rushed to cover the war. Most assumed they would cover the new war as they had covered other wars, but the scale, brutality, and duration of the war required a more diverse and comprehensive type of war coverage. As Europe fully mobilized and the boundaries between battlefield and home front blurred, many editors sought to capture a more complete picture of the war by also exploring the war from a woman's angle. To discuss this angle and the American women who covered the war, we are joined today by Chris Dubbs, author of An Unladylike Profession, American Women War Correspondents in World War I. Welcome, sir. Good to be with you. I guess I should say welcome back because this actually isn't your first time on the World War I History Podcast. You joined no. us a few months ago to talk about another book, American Journalists in the Great War. And I guess my first question is, did research for that book lead you to the topic of women war correspondence? There is definitely a link between the two books. It's a little embarrassing to talk about, but let me explain. When I wrote that first book, most of the reporters, of course, were men in the war. Uh, I included a mention of few women, particularly those who recorded on the Russian Revolution, 1917. But after that book, <clears throat> I did a follow-up book, an anthology of World War I journalism, the AEF in print. And it was while researching that book that I kept coming across all this fantastic war reporting by women, not just in Russia, but everywhere, the Western Front, the Eastern Front, uh, the warring capitals, uh, the Ottoman Empire. So I literally had a moment wh where I said to myself, oh, my God, what have you done? You wrote a book about how World War I was reported, and you did not fairly represent women journalists. I mean, I was not the first historian who fell into this trap, who marginalized or ignored women, but I fell into the trap. So I, I knew immediately I, I had to fix this. I had to write a second book that told about the journalists of World War I, told the story of the female journalists. In the introduction, we mentioned American editors being interested in capturing what they called a woman's angle. Can you explain what they meant and why were they so interested in the woman's angle? Uh, it basically meant uh, human interest stories about women and children, uh, the family, how they were enduring the hardships and the sacrifices of war, uh, the role they were playing in the war. So it probably began with a, a sharp focus on how women were responding. Uh, they were victims of the war, but it expanded exponentially to the larger role they took on. Let me let me give one example here. The writer Cora Harris visited England and France in the fall of 1914. She was one of the first women to get over there. Her editor sent her there to write about women. And she reported immediately about the women in England, how they organized to support refugees and to raise money for hospitals in France. When Harris got to France, she, she heard a rumor about a, a woman who had stood up to the German invaders who came into her village, and she saved a lot of lives. And so Harris immediately started looking for this woman. She tried to sneak into the war zone to find her and couldn't manage to do that. But she eventually tracked her down and got the whole story. 
And this woman now was mayor of her town and ran two hospitals in there. So it's just a, a perfect example of a woman's angle of the story. These stories were being told. These stories were not being told, excuse me, by the male reporters, but women were getting over there and capturing this part of the war. Do you have a rough idea of how many women, how many American women served as war correspondents in the war? And what papers did they work for? And were they in every theater? In my book, I write about uh, some 30 women reporters. My guess, and it's only a guess, is that there were at least two or three times that many. And and as you mentioned, I only write about uh, American women reporters. Two of these women uh, wrote for wire services. Uh, Mary Boyle O'Reilly was the uh, London Bureau Chief of the Enterprise News Service when the war broke out. Uh, She was among the first reporters to reach Belgium, where everything was happening the first month of the war. Alice Rowe was the Rome Bureau Chief for the Associated Press in 1915. And so she reported on Italy and it's uh, getting into the war, everything that developed and, and happened to push Italy into the war. So these wire service reporters, I mean, their articles would appear in thousands of newspapers across America that subscribed to their services. There were also several major newspapers that used female reporters. I mean, New York Times and New York Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, uh, the Philadelphia Eagle. And some other women reporters were regular contributors for magazines. Largest circulation magazine in America at the time was the Saturday Evening Post, had a weekly circulation of 2 million readers. It really stands out as one that used a lot of female reporters from the opening days of the conflict uh, through American occupation of Germany after the war. And then there were many female reporters who were on uh, freelance, short-term assignments for magazines. Um, some of these women only started to cover the war, of course, uh, after American entry, uh, April 1917. There was a dramatic increase in reporters after that. People back home uh, wanted to know what the boys were up to. So a number of uh, women's magazines, for example, uh, got into the action at this point, and they sent their own reporters to France. Their readers you know, had husbands and sons and brothers uh, in the army, and uh, they wanted to know what their training was like, what their leisure activities were like. Uh, So that's another woman's angle in the war, I suppose. One journalist comes to mind, uh, Rita Dorr. She had a a son in the army, and she wrote a nationally syndicated column titled A Soldier's Mother in France. And she referred to herself as the stand-in mother for all the other mothers waiting anxiously at home. Uh, So she was in France and visited training camps and interviewed soldiers on leave in Paris and uh, explained how the army looked after its men. As to the um, theaters where they reported, I I suppose as with the male correspondents, reporting by women focused mainly in France and England uh, on the Western Front. As I mentioned, they had a large presence in Russia during the revolution, but uh, women reported everywhere men did, and then some. Uh, Saturday Evening Post writer Eleanor Egan reported extensively from Turkey and was the first journalist to report on the British campaign in Mesopotamia. She risked her life to expose the Armenian genocide. She was on a ship in the Mediterranean that was attacked by a U-boat, so they were everywhere. 
what is the average age of the American woman war correspondent? Because I know, you know, this point in history, we're at the very end of what we call the long 19th century. And this idea that, you know, there are separate spheres for men and women, and at least in women's travel writing, that was very kind of a big thing around that time. A lot of the women try to cast themselves as older, as mothers, as kind of maternal figures, and that that gives them entree into kind of these different male spheres that they wouldn't have if they were a very young single woman. So are are a lot of these reporters older or do we have young women in their 20s traveling and reporting? Most of them are older. I mean, they had established a a reputation, a career as writers. I mean, a lot of them were fiction writers initially. They had worked several years or or more than several years, uh, multiple years for newspapers and magazines. So the ones that come immediately to mind, boy, it'd be hard to put an exact age on them, but I guess most were in their late 20s, 30s. Uh, There were some over there in their 50s. There are some examples of women who got over there and uh, on freelance assignment that sort of didn't pan out and they were stranded over there. They didn't have a a network. They weren't part of a wire service or worked for a a well-established magazine and they were sort of stranded. But most of them, I think, had an established career before they got over there. How were they treated by their male colleagues generally? There's certainly examples of their of male reporters being patronizing to women. But if, if we broaden that question a little bit to men in general, how, do, how were they treated? I mean, such as their editors or the uh, civilian and military officials that they came in contact with in France. I, I already mentioned uh, Saturday Evening Post as a sort of a shining example of the use of women reporters. One of their magazine's most popular writers was Mary Roberts Reinhardt. When she approached the, the editor in the fall of 1914, requesting a war assignment, his response was that, well, I'm sending over a few men to cover the fighting. And because of the dangers, the only women I'm sending over there are old maids and widows, namely because uh, they, did, they had, uh, didn't have an obligation to marriage or to child rearing. Of course, to be clear, the the men he was sending over to cover the fighting were married and had children, but obviously it wasn't a consideration with them. In the warring countries, I, I think the, the general opinion of officials was that women were not real war reporters. They would be writing about uh, more frivolous things, and they didn't deserve the same level of assistance that the men were getting. But, uh, but then, too, women sometimes had to deal with attitudes towards the publications they wrote for especially after the U.S. entered the war, a number of women's magazines, as I mentioned, uh, sent over reporters. So if if you wrote for Good Housekeeping Magazine or Ladies Home Journal, you didn't get the same respect and cooperation as someone who wrote for the New York Times or the Atlantic or Chicago Tribune or, or Saturday Evening Post. One thing I noticed while I was reading the book was that access to the the front lines was difficult for everyone. But unlike their male colleagues at times, it seems that the women sometimes had a slight advantage in that they could join medical or aid organizations and use this war work as a access to the front. How did this work? Can you give us some examples of some of the reporters that used official war work to gain access to what they wanted to report on? Now, we're talking about the period of American involvement, uh, 1917, 1918. By this point in the war, reporting was pretty regimented. 
I mean, you didn't just show up in France and wander around looking for a story. You had to work through the uh, French Press Bureau or the AEF press office. The AEF initially credentialed about 15 journalists to report on its activities. Uh, those from the wire services, uh, those from the major urban newspapers uh, and Saturday Evening Post, none of them were women. These credentialed reporters lived in one location near General Pershing's headquarters. They had, each had their own vehicle and an officer escort. They got regular briefings about what was going on. Uh, they had some freedom to travel. So they were the, the VIPs, the credentialed reporters. Everyone else had to apply to the AEF or the French War Office for permission to travel in the war zone. And this was a, a tedious process. It took a long time. We'd only allow for a brief period of access, uh, usually on an escorted tour. So some of the women reporters hit on a different strategy. They, you know, they volunteered with aid organizations, groups like um, the Red Cross or the Salvation Army, uh, the YMCA. Uh, were all very active in supporting U.S. troops uh, and the civilian population in, in the war zone. So they operated hospitals and ambulances and entertained the troops. Uh, they set up recreation tents at the bases. They even delivered refreshments into the front, the front lines. So if you volunteered with them, you got access to where things were happening, sometimes even better access than the AEF credentialed reporters. So a number of women reporters did this and got some great reporting. One of them was uh, Maud Warren, and Warren liked to tell the story about what happened to her when one of the American battles started. She worked for a YMCA unit. Her unit rushed immediately rushed to the front lines as soon as they heard this battle was getting started or about to get started. They rushed to the front lines with hot chocolate and donuts. And uh, at one sentry post near the front, the credentialed reporters were being held back from going any further. But the sentry waved right through the YMCA truck. And so Warren and her crew sped past, got to the front lines, served up donuts, hot chocolate, found out what was happening, talked to the soldiers, and uh, got a scoop that was denied to the credentialed reporters. So there are numerous examples of that strategy of uh, that helping women reporters get uh, a story that was denied to the men. I thought that was a very interesting part of the book, how they did use those organizations. Now, tell me if I'm reading too much into this, but it seems that as the war went on, Allied leadership really warmed to the idea of American women correspondents, that they kind of looked to them to plead their cause in the United States. What do you think? Were women correspondents just novelties? Were men like King Albert or Foch uh, just being polite when they granted them interviews? Or in such a total war, was there a very calculated advantage to talking with female correspondents and hopefully influencing through them the American home front? Yeah, I think you're, you're right that female reporters were, were generally better accepted as the war went on. and. Uh, I suppose officials saw the advantage uh, that they could report on the home front and things that might have an impact on public opinion. But uh, as a calculated advantage for someone to speak to a female reporter, I'm not so sure. Uh, you mentioned King Albert of Belgium and, and General Foch, of commander of French forces. That's in reference to one very particular female reporter, Mary Roberts Reinhardt uh, of the Saturday Evening Post. She did have one 
very remarkable stint of war reporting in January to March uh, 1915. And Allied leaders did make a calculated decision to use her, but but not so much because she was a woman. But she, she she's such an exceptional case, it's, it's worth explaining her experience. Reinhardt uh, arrived in Europe in January 1915. Coverage of the war had had settled into what reporters were already calling the dark ages. Uh, reporters couldn't travel in the war zone, and they were being arrested if they did. Governments shared very little information about what was happening in the fighting. The wounded flowed back to the home front, and massive casualty lists got published. But the public was really being kept in the dark. Well, that, that began to change in early 1915, six months into the war. This was turning into a long war. And, and a long war needs public patience and, and public support. Rather than uh, suppress the news, they would manage the news. Anyway, that's the exact moment Reinhardt shows up in London. She had zero war reporting experience. In fact, no journalism experience whatsoever. But she happened to be an enormously popular uh, writer of mystery fiction. She was a novelist and a playwright. And she was on assignment for the largest circulation magazine in America. So what the Allied nations wanted very much at this point was to influence public opinion in the largest neutral country in the world, the United States. So they selected Reinhardt to tell their story. Uh, she got gold star VIP treatment. She got first in the war interviews with the Belgian king and queen and with Queen Mary of England. Uh, no reporter had even spoken to General Foch. Uh, or the commander of British forces, uh, Sir John French, uh, Reinhardt had lunch with them. <laughs> she discussed the war with them. They showed her their battle maps. Uh, they invited her to visit their trenches, and she did. So she gave America, heck, the, the world, its first behind-the-scenes look at the war. So, so to your point about the calculated advantage of, of speaking to a female reporter, Reinhardt was a unique case. And the reason for her getting such special treatment was not because she was a woman, but because she was famous and writing for a magazine that had two million readers in the United States. You write that the war made women victims, but also war workers, and that this becomes a very apparent and compelling argument for women's suffrage in the United States. Do the women correspondents hammer this home for their readers are most of them in favor of suffrage, or are they relatively ambivalent on this issue? The war came at a very interesting time in terms of women's suffrage. The suffrage movement had been extremely active in the U.S. and uh, Britain. British suffrage, suffragists especially were turning violent. I mean, they were yelling bombs and things like that. The British suffragists put their campaign on suspension during the war, and they worked for the war effort. American suffragists uh, weren't violent like that, but they, they kept their campaign going. They were picketing outside the White House during the war. How long do women have to uh, wait for the vote? Most of the women reporters covering the war supported suffering. Not all, but most of them did. But they weren't activists for the cause in their writing. But I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, though, because it, even though they did not promote women's rights in their articles, they still made it one of the biggest stories of the war. Here's the bottom line. These women reporters wrote about women. That's stunning in its simplicity, but profound in its implications. Male reporters did not write about women. Women correspondents did. 
So the enormous role played by women in the war would have been largely lost without them. Initially, they did this by pointing out women were victims of the war. I mean, every woman, well, every reporter who over there saw women dressed in black everywhere. They had lost husbands. Uh, they were refugees forced out of their home because of the invasion of Belgium and France. They suffered privations on the home front. Uh, they came under attack in Paris and London. Uh, they were bombed by zeppelins and airplanes, Antwerp by siege artillery. So women and children were killed. But the other story that began to emerge was that women were not just victims, but full and active participants in the war effort. The war literally could not have been fought without them. So in the war zone, I mean, women drove ambulances and staffed hospitals as nurses and doctors. On the home front, they, they moved into the workforce. An army of women worked in munitions factories or on farms or in war charities, nearly every civilian occupation. It was really a, a turning point here. I mean, before the war, women had to literally force their way into virtually every business and industry and profession. Now they were being actively invited in. These industries needed women to replace the men who had been sent to fight. So for the first time, universities, for example, graduated women in sciences and engineering. They hadn't done that before. Professional organizations and trade unions opened their membership to women for the first time. One of these uh, women reporters went to France, Mabel Daggett. She wrote for uh, the women's magazine, Pictorial Review. She defined it as a revolution of women's empowerment. As, as Daggett put it, nothing that anybody ever said about women before August 1914 goes today. Everything they said she shouldn't do and couldn't do, she now does. So it's a wonderful and powerful story from the war. It's very interesting. It's almost like a lot of their reporting kind of normalized the idea of thinking about women working and also women being part of these wars. So I just thought that was really kind of unique and interesting. Do you think World War I was a defining moment for women in media? And do you think it legitimized them as war correspondents? I want to be careful how I answer this. I, I guess I'd start with a qualified yes to both those questions. Women had slowly been establishing themselves in journalism for, gosh, at least two decades before World War I. There were some nationally known women reporters, uh, some who tackled serious issues. Nellie Bly comes to mind. She became a, a national celebrity in the 1890s when she wrote about her trip around the world, 72 days. Ida Tarbell wrote a famous expose of Standard Oil Company. But, but they were the exceptions. Uh, I mean, as a general rule, women's opportunities in journalism were limited. At most papers, uh, they could be found editing the woman's page, uh, writing about domestic issues and social issues and advice to the lovelorn. It was, it was changing, but, but slowly. So World War I comes along, and it, and it puts a national spotlight on these women reporters. So the war gave them the opportunity to write about serious topics for major national publications for four years. Uh, they proved something they had not had the opportunity to prove before. Did it uh, legitimize them as war correspondents? Um, it, it certainly didn't remove all the barriers. The, the women who reported World War II had to struggle with how they were accepted. But the, the women journalists of World War I uh, definitely broke the glass ceiling. They, they created opportunities for those who followed. Final thoughts on American women war correspondents in World War I? Yeah, I, I deal with this somewhat in, in my book, but close 
probably with the thought that women developed a, a unique style of war reporting in World War I that had not been seen before. Uh, a unique voice? That was a question mark after that uh, because it's hard to define. Uh, a distinctive brand, a different relationship with the people they wrote about. One of the war articles that is, is always at a, an emotional gut punch for me was written by uh, Clara Savage of Good Housekeeping Magazine. She was visiting a wounded soldier in the hospital, and she, she tells about helping the soldier write a letter to his sweetheart, in which he explains to this uh, girl back home in America that his face no longer looks like a face, and he wonders if she could still love him. Whew, every time I tell, tell that story, I have to compose myself. I mean, it tears your heart out. But that's just one of many, many such examples. Male reporters did not capture such moments. Men missed an entire facet of the war. So my, my theory is that these women reporters got closer to their subjects. You know, the civilians, the soldiers they wrote about, they were more empathetic. They connected with them on a deeper emotional level than did the male reporters. So whether they were talking to war widows or refugee children or women munitions workers or kings and queens and generals or the soldier in the frontline trench. We get a glimpse of an emotional life of these people that provided a unique picture on the war. And, and that's what these women gave us. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.